0: Yes, yes. Welcome into another edition of the Tim McKernan Show here on the Inside STL Podcast Network from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. Ryan Kelly and his great staff making this podcast possible, along with James Carlton and Johnny Landolph Chevrolet. Very grateful for their support of the podcast and have enjoyed doing them and have another great interview for the audience today. They just keep coming, and that's a credit to executive producer John Seymour for all of the work he has done in making it possible. And we're looking forward to bringing you Mark Mulder, the former Cardinal. He is with us for an interview that was supposed to be a half hour and then wound up being 90 minutes. And it's a guy that I don't think I spoke to more than four times while he was in St. Louis, not because he was mean-spirited, just because he, as he explains, actually, in the interview, he just didn't really want to be media guy. Uh, But he uh, talked about so much, plenty I didn't know, in this interview, and I think you're going to enjoy it. And one of the things is now that I've been doing this now for what, uh, about nine months, eight, nine months, I'm just going to get out of the way. I I, I go too long on the intro, so I just want to shut up. Because I, I like, for example, I listen to Mark Marin, and then he goes on for like 10 minutes, and I find myself just going, okay, get to the interview, get to the interview, get to the interview. So that's what I need to do. If I'm, if I'm going to bitch about Mark Marin taking too long, what am I doing if I'm taking too long? So I'm going to shut up. But here's the deal without the sponsors, and we need sponsors, Jack. We need sponsors because it's not a charity. Without the sponsors, we don't have a show. So if you're enjoying the podcast, please make sure you do business with Ryan Kelly, James Carlton, and Johnny Landoff Chevrolet. Ryan Kelly, thehomeloanexpert.com. That's where you can find Ryan Kelly. If you're buying a home, refinancing a home, you go to the com and click on whichever tab applies to you, buying or refinancing. And just like that, you can enter in your numbers and get an idea what your payment's going to be on a new home or what You can save by refinancing. Five minutes can save you $500. Why not do it? And if you're going to do it, make sure you're doing it with Ryan Kelly and his team at thehomeloanexpert.com. That's thehomeloanexpert.com. So I'm getting out of the way. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to try and do. And then I'll maybe I'll, I'll, I'll wax poetic on the back end of the interview. But let's just go right into it. Here he is, Mark Mulder, with me on the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network from thehomeloanexpert.com studios. So I got to ask this. Here, here's where I am now. I'm actually more interested in talking about your golf game than your pitching, <laughs> <laughs> although I'm planning on discussing both. So you're yeah. so you're in Scottsdale. Are you are you playing constantly? Are you working on your game? Where where are things here?
1: Oh man. I mean, to be honest, I don't I don't work on my game. Um, I don't I don't have the time, and I don't have the mindset for that. So I probably I, I guess I average probably two and a half rounds a week.
0: But you don't practice,
1: not not. Besides, maybe the twenty to fifty balls I hit before I play. Right,
0: and you're still so, scratch golf. Am I correct? Is that the official gin number? Where yeah,
1: I've been I've been playing awful for the last uh, couple months. And Chez Revi the other day, uh, we're playing, and he, he uh, we're I'm like I'm six over through like five holes, and he goes. He goes, "Hey dude, you're kind of standing a little too straight up. Bend a little more at your waist, get your upper get your chest down a little bit. And I think I was one under the rest of the way."
0: Really? So he so spots like, that and
1: yeah. just like
0: that it switches.
1: Yeah, and yet for the last 2 months I've just been losing money to everybody I know. So
0: <laughs> Now I saw you though, you were playing in the Diamond Resorts Invitational in January. Am I correct? That's January usually? All right. And you were near the top of the leaderboard, as you seem to be in any time you play in these things. Were you playing
1: poorly then?
0: Yes. Really? And and nonetheless, you were still at the top of the leaderboard.
1: Well, yeah. I ended up finishing third. um, But, yeah, it started a couple weeks prior to that tournament. So that tournament, I was grinding like you wouldn't believe. I was getting up and down from everywhere. I was making 20-footers just to give myself a chance and yeah my my swing was a little jacked up at the time but i was i'm just such i'm so insanely competitive that it i don't even care if, if i go into one of these playing terrible it's like i'm gonna find a way to do it you know oh,
0: god bless i respect that so what, did you grow up playing like did you, were you like one of those country club kids that was out there at four or five years old
1: i was exactly the opposite of that um i grew up in a on the south side of Chicago and
0: not a lot um, of country clubs on the south side of Chicago. Uh
1: no. There, <laughs> no, there was not. I I grew up with a golf course that was maybe six thousand yards. It was called River Oaks. Um and it was obviously next to a river that when we got a lot of rain, the entire course flooded. Wow. So, so, so it's one of those
0: deals. We have a few of those in St. Louis.
1: Yeah. I would save up my money all winter. To where now? This is when I'm probably 11, 12, 13, 14 in that age. I'd save up my allowance or paper out money, and I'd buy a $20 resident card. Come springtime, and so would my brother. And that 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 was 20 bucks that you just you know my parents made us pay it, and then I could golf for three dollars. So I went with a five dollar bill every time. It was a buck fifty for a hot dog and a coke at the turn, and two quarters to call my mom. Oh my God! Well, you have this and all worked out, and that's how I—that's how I grew up golfing. Was my brother and I just carrying our bags? We'd sometimes there was no driving range. All there was was a putting green. You'd get there, you'd put your name on a list, and there were times where we'd wait an hour and a half to tee off, <clears throat> and that was—that was pretty much the extent of it. And then we'd get paired with some people, and we'd go play, and man, it was—it was brutal. <laughs> in comparison, but I but I remember I remember in the summertime in Chicago. You know, when it's hot, there were times my brother and I we take our shirts off, and I remember we try to we try to hide from the from the marshal driving around because he'd always be like, "Hey guys, you got to put your shirts back on," <laughs> you know. But it was so flippin' hot out there that you you couldn't help it, and obviously I, I had I wasn't bringing bottles of water, I wasn't. You know nothing, so it was just you're just wearing it until you got done with nines, where you could get to the drinking fountain. You know. <laughs>
0: now, were you good right away, or when did you become the scratch golfer you are
1: now? It wasn't until it wasn't really until uh, I got in, I got to pro baseball. Um, I played <clears throat> I played for fun through high school. Uh, didn't play much in college at all, and then when the A's drafted me and I came out to Arizona that's when I started playing a whole lot. I mean, I'd go to the complex here, uh, the spring training site for the A's. I'd work out at eight o'clock. We'd be done by say 11 and five, six, eight of us would all be teeing off by eight, by noon. So I spent my off seasons playing golf probably close to every other day um, for those few months. Then the season would start and I would play sparingly throughout the season. I mean, I'd bring my clubs, but it all depended when I was pitching and stuff like that. Right. And then um, that's just kind of how it continued. And I was probably a four to six hand, four handicap maybe during that time. Uh, four to six, I guess. And then once baseball got done, I went to, I went down to about a one or so pretty quickly because your short game gets better when you start playing all the time. Yeah,
0: yeah. And that's where you save those strokes.
1: Yeah, and for me, this when my career ended. I then put in a putting chipping green in my backyard and when I did that then I after probably a year or so of that grabbing a glass of wine at night and going out there for an hour you know every night every other night after the kids my well we probably only had I think we only had one at the time but um doing that every night you know then all of a sudden you know you you start I started getting into the pluses or right at a zero and things started changing I start you know I play with tour guys all the time in the winter so i'm such a visual person and i i'm just a feel guy if you ask me to explain pitching mechanics i can do it about as well as any high school coach because to me it's a it's a feel it's what i feel when i'm out there and i'm the same way with golf i can see it and then i can just kind of get myself to go do it
0: so so when you were playing with the A's guys who were you playing with
1: uh, Corey Lytle, uh, obviously, oh, yeah. who passed away in that yep. plane crash. Um, Ted Lilly, uh, Tim Hudson. Um, Lilly and Lytle were probably the two that I played with the most on the road. Um, but it, it, just, it just varied, man. It depended who was. Jermaine Dye played a lot uh, for a position player. Chavez would play from time to time. But you know, once the season starts, position guys generally don't play unless it's maybe an off day.
0: And then when you got to St. Louis, Wainwright was just starting out. I know. Yeah. I know he's got great game. Uh, who else were you? Who you play with when you got to St. Louis?
1: Uh, Jason Marquis and Chris Carter. Well, Kirk that's Carpenter. right. Did you go to? Do, yeah.
0: I, I remember Marquis telling me he played Augusta. Did you go on that trip? That was the two of us. Yeah. Oh my God! Was that the first yeah, time you played the, Augusta? It was. Have you played yeah, it we since? Went, we
1: played 27 holes and and flew back. It was uh, with uh, Drew Bauer, who was the that's right one of the owners of the Cardinals.
0: Absolutely. So, so tell me about that.
1: Ah uh, man, you know you you hop on a anytime you're hopping on a plane at five in the morning, it's it's never a bad thing. We land at the Augusta Airport. We have these green green vans pick us up because they they'd met some other people. Drew did, who he knew from Milwaukee or something. So I think we had, I think we had 12 people total. Um, And then uh, Bill DeWitt Jr. was also on the, on that trip. So I, I I know I played either 18 or nine with him that day, but you know, the green Augusta vans pick you up. uh, You drive down Magnolia Lane at that time, man, it was, it was just a, a camera in my bag. So there were no, Phones, phones with yeah. cameras on them at that time and if you did have it it wasn't very good anyway so i only have a handful of pictures i only have maybe five or six pictures because you almost you almost felt like should i bring my camera out should i pull it out is it <laughs> you know that kind of stuff but you know the, the coolest thing about augusta as i tell people don't get me wrong the golf was incredible but you walk out the back of that clubhouse and there is green grass and rolling hills Everywhere and it is such a it's probably one of the hardest courses. I've ever had to walk And and I walk a bunch and I've gotten I've been fortunate enough to play a lot of really cool places But the undulations of that course people people have no idea watching it on TV it's uh, It's pretty special. I mean there's not a single blade of grass out of place everything is is completely green and perfect and you know, 9 kind of comes up to the clubhouse mm-hmm. moving from right to left, and then 18 comes up moving from left to right. Well, in between those two holes, that was like the old, old driving range. So that's what I'm talking about. When you walk out and you, you look out over this, this hilly land and the grass, that, there's a lot of grass that's open up that's just open between 18 and 9. And it, like I said, it's perfect. I mean, everything is perfect and it was uh it was one of my favorite experiences it was it was really cool i mean it's it's getting to where i mean that was 2000
0: probably 5 6 yeah so that
1: was yeah 2005 so that was a while ago so i'm trying to i, I have my ways but I'll, I'll be back i'll be back there hopefully in the next year or two playing again i hope
0: did you uh did you play the members tees
1: we played all the way back we played all the way back we played um uh, we played 18, and then we played the back nine again. And I think I shot, I think I shot 79, and then 40 uh, on the back nine again.
0: Anything stand out from playing there?
1: Any um, hole? Any particular I birdied, hole? I, bur- I birdied seven, and I birdied 15. Birdied 15. Seven, I hit it to about seven was the front right pin, where it everything kind of collects in a little bit of a bowl. Mm-hmm. And I hit it. I pulled it a little left. Catches the slope, goes to the right, goes up the hill, rolls back down, and hits to about a foot. Nice. And then 15, I pulled my drive a little bit left around those trees, so I had to chip something low out in front, and then chipped a 54 degree wedge to about six feet, and then I made it. So those were those were unfortunately my only two birdies. Number 11, number 11, man, the the new tees that are way back there. You get off ten, and you have you feel like you walk a hundred yards to your left to go back to a tee box that is looks like it's in a cave of trees, <laughs> you know. And the hole is just borderline; it, it's it's impossible. Is it
0: impossible? I, 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 I Is that the hardest hole in the course in your opinion?
1: I thought so. Yeah, I thought so. Um, that and number four, the two hundred Thirty odd yard par three. Right, <laughs> that's I mean. It's too. just it's just absurd. <laughs> so, um, when you look at the member tees, I can see. I think the course would be really cool to play from the member tees. I mean, maybe you know what would be cool playing Augusta with Persimmon Woods from the member tees. Oh yeah, that would be that would be a really cool uh, experience.
0: How far are you able to get off the tee?
1: Um, well, at that time I was a little more wild off the tee and I'd probably hit it 310-ish. 3, I, I mean, I can still get it out there, but I hit it a lot straighter. So, I mean, I'll hit it. I mean, there's times I can hit a ball 3320, but I would say I'd probably hit it 290-ish wow. right around there, give or take, if I'm playing well and I'm hitting it straight.
0: I saw that interview you did on the Golf Channel, and you were talking to, I think it was Taryn Schaefer, who used to be at Fox Sports Midwest, and, uh-huh. you, and you said you couldn't really go all the way back because your two shoulder surgeries, as far as really... Well, get-
1: yeah, well, see, for me, I golf right-handed. That's right. So, yeah. my left arm is the one that has to go across my chest, so my, my shoulder doesn't bother me doing anything, um, but while i still have decent range of motion i don't get i probably come just short of parallel up at the top mm-hmm. so yeah i can't quite get it maybe as far as i'd probably like to but i don't really think i don't really think it uh, it affects me or hinders me or or anything like that you know it's not like i bring the club back and and i'm thinking oh that hurts you know yeah. it, it's it's nothing like that
0: so you, you were mentioning you played with Ches Ravy, who had a great start to his season. Yeah. Uh, he was almost in the mix there. What well, he was in the mix at Waste Management, almost won it. Um, and, and, and you play with tour players. So when people hear somebody's a scratch golfer, the question, and then you're winning these celebrity events, they go, wonder if he wants to play on the tour. I wonder if he wants yep. to play on the Champions Tour. And my guess is, before I ask the question, is you're going to say, yeah, I am good, but these guys are in a different world and I see it firsthand that as, as good as I am when I'm playing in the celebrity events, I know how big of a gap there is between me and the tour players. Is that a fair a fair assessment of what you would say?
1: It is. But then you could even take it further to the extreme, which I've said in the past, is that they could play in flip flops in their underwear and, and I they could give me three aside and I would still get my butt whooped. Really? So now a lot of that is dependent on the course you're playing. So the course that I play with a lot of these guys is Whisper Rock. It's a place here in Scottsdale that it's a really, di- it's, it's, a, it's on the difficult side of things. So when you hear McCord and Costas and them talk on the golf channel about having 20 to 25 tour players at a place in Arizona, this is the place they're talking okay. about. So I play with these guys. If they give me three aside, which is normally what our bet is, I lose at least three out of four times. And uh, and and it's not too, and it's not because it, it's that if I break par like okay if I shoot seventy five on our lower course we have two courses if I shoot seventy five on our course that's a zero handicap you know that's that's what comes across I think that rates out with the rate you know the course rating right. and all that stuff so when I play and I play well I'm shooting between seventy two and seventy seven the majority of my rounds at the courses that I normally play at. Now, when I go play other places here in the Valley, yeah, I can maybe go under par. And in these tournaments, we obviously, in the celebrity tournaments, they move the tees way up. So it's a lot easier to go under par in those tournaments. So the reality is, is that these guys, I would compare it to an A-ball player or a rookie ball player being me playing in the big links. Yes, an eight-ball player is going to get lucky and hit a homer off a big league pitcher. But it's not going to happen very often.
0: So when you see these guys firsthand, and you make that analogy, which is a great analogy, what what are the things that they can do that, as good as you are, that you can't do?
1: Well, um, they can flight the ball ten different ways. Yeah. I can maybe, I maybe have three to four different ways that I could hit a five iron off a tee. You know, I could hit a high draw. I can cut it and I can chip something low in the wind, but they can do it. They can do it 10 to 12 different ways to play that shot off the tee. I can hit a, I can maybe hit a ball and turn it over. If, if I get lucky, most of the time I have a little cut. I that's the only two shots I have. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I mean, if they want to, if they want to hit something low in the wind, if they want to launch something with a big high draw to turn it, if they want, you know, there, there's numerous things. You you watch their their short game is. I have a really good short game, and their short games are incredible. Uh, the the second if when and if they miss greens, it's like ho hum getting up and down for their par. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if, if the par fives. The, just the other day, like Ches didn't play that great and I bet you I bet you he shot sixty eight, you know, and and really he missed a hand he missed the probably four to five birdie putts that he normally makes. I, I really don't even think he made a bogey, to be honest with you. I mean I I played with him before when he shot sixty two. You know, and it was the most what's crazy is it's the most Boring 62 <laughs> you've ever seen. You know, that was, Pat Perez is a good buddy of mine. This is years ago. I have a career day and shoot 69 on a different course out here in Arizona. And I'm thinking to myself when I got done, I'm like, man, he didn't play very well. We might have tied. You know, we might have. He shot 67. God. You know, so I got beat by two and had a career day. <laughs> You know, so that's that's the thing. I mean, I I look at how many pitches, how many balls I've thrown in my life to try to to get to that elite level. Think about how many balls these yep. guys have chipped and putted and hit, and it, it's it's just not even it, it's not even close.
0: It's funny you bring that up because Pat Perez. Do you watch Faraday? I would yeah, yeah, Faraday's great. Yep. And uh, you saw Pat was on with what Kisner and Horschel a few weeks ago. Yep and Pat got a little fired up, as he's one to do, great entertainment. I've yeah. met him as well, and uh, and he, he said, you know, this thing about it being an easy life, and then he kind of goes into golf's the only one where there isn't a guarantee, and people don't realize how hard we work to get here and all the balls that we hit, yeah. and he got a little fired up about it, but here's somebody such as yourself who was a professional athlete, high, high-level professional athlete, and play the game at a high level, and still you see the gap and have the appreciation for what they're able to do despite the fact that you're out there winning these celebrity tournaments seemingly every year?
1: Well, here's the way I compare it. You know, you can take baseball, you can take basketball, you can take football. Okay, yes, there are—you have different—each contract is different. Yes, I get it, you can be released with football, baseballs are guaranteed, whatever. Imagine, Pat Pat said it to me—I've known Pat for 17-ish odd years, and he said it to me probably 10 years ago. He's like— The the hardest part about golf, especially when you're starting to make some money, is that imagine actually being at the top of the leaderboard. You haven't really made much money in your career, and you have a putt on the 18th hole, and part of you doesn't want to know it, but unfortunately you do because the leaderboards are everywhere. You are solo third. But if you miss this, if you bogey this hole, you will now go into a tie with five other people for fourth place. You know what I'm saying, so mm-hmm. that that solo third as opposed to a five way tie for tie for fourth could be three hundred thousand dollars mm. you know i mean that's it, well maybe well that 's a little much, but you get what i 'm saying sure. is that it, it could be a significant amount for something like that, and imagine having a family at home and and I know Pat says there's no guarantees, but you know certain players once you get good, you might get a couple million or a half million in from your club sponsor and there's you're obviously getting money but a lot of that is paying for their travel because mm-hmm. they have to pay for all of their travel and expenses throughout the entire year it's not like baseball where we have a team hotel and a charter right you know so yes there are uh, there are a lot of differences and you know the top 10 ish golfers make a lot of money but once you get past that top 15 or 20 there's a there's a there's a difference you know
0: so you clearly have a great perspective on the game, not just because you get to play with these guys, but you get to talk to them and have an understanding of where it is. In the back of my mind, when I watch these things, and I know you have sick game, I knew it when you were here in St. Louis that you did, I was always thinking, I wonder if Mulder will want to go on the Champions Tour. At the time it was called the Senior Tour. Yeah. So, so you're only 40. Yep. Do, do you have aspirations for that?
1: I, I don't. Because every one of those guys who's 40 on the PGA Tour is going to be 50 when I turn 50. <laughs>
0: yeah, think it is the way mathematically it works.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, so the reality is, and I'll tell you this, so the last two years, the Orlando tournament with Diamond Resorts, we were paired with Champions Tour players. Well, they had 27 Champions Tour guys playing last year when I, well, not this past January, the January before, when right. I won it. Played pretty well. I had... 70, high 70s points-wise, okay? Woody Austin won for the pros with 106. <laughs> okay, so I would have needed a whole nother day of a tournament to try to possibly catch him. God. And that, and he was, at the time, what, he was 50, mid-50s mm-hmm. at the time, and I'm, I'm 39 right. at the time. So, you know, I think that that should give people good comparison of, of what that is. I played with Lehman a few months ago Uh, in his chair, in his charity thing for the Schwab cup here in Phoenix. I was paired with him. I think I shot one over at Phoenix country club and I think he was five under, you know, so (sighs) here's the thing. Would I love to go try and play on the champions tour? Yes. I would love to say that I want to do that, but I know I know, like I said, I know how much work I had to put in to get to the top of baseball, and from age 40 to 50, and the kids being, I have three kids at 10 and under right now, I have no interest, and I'm pretty sure my wife has no interest, of me <laughs> trying to put in that much work. And, and to be honest, if I did, it would ruin the game for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's where that's, I was going to go with that. It, does it become unfun if you start having to like, oh, I got to go hit this, and today I got to work on a draw for the you know next yep. hour?
1: I mean, that's... because I would have to hire a swing person, which uh, or like sw- I'd have to I'd have to start taking it serious. I'd have to get a swing coach to some some degree. And I've taken one golf lesson in my entire life, and while that lesson really helped me understand the swing, I couldn't find grass for about three weeks. Wow. And that's that's what you say here in Arizona because you normally have some fairway, sure. you have a little bit of rough, and you have desert. Right. So I went through a whole lot of golf balls for two weeks until I started, things started to click a little bit with that one lesson to where I started to understand it. And, you know, like I said, because I'm a field person, I eventually got it. But, you know, it, I still get in funks just like I told you about Chez telling me I was standing too straight up. So it – uh the game gets frustrating for me, and I think if I took it that serious, I wouldn't enjoy it the way that I do
0: I saw you uh in that interview, and I thought this was kind of an enlightening thing. Taryn asked you about uh, the guys you were playing with, and you said, yeah, it's great because they're so happy they're champions tours guys, and they've already kind of made their money. sometimes they play with tour guys, and some of them are just miserable because of the grind
1: yeah yeah it's it's you know don't get me wrong i mean they're all they're all great but You know, to a certain extent. I mean, you see, Pat's. You saw Perez's personality, Mm -hmm. just for him, for an example. You know, you saw his personality. He's he's a grinder. He's 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 mellowed out a lot over the years. He used to get a lot more angry on the course at times. This and that. The
0: infamous Pebble Beach debacle
1: yeah from years ago and and that's not really who he is it's just there again he's a really competitive person and he expects he expects the most out of himself and you know the the champions tour guys it is it is interesting they're 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 so they're just happy to be there with a chance to make a little bit more money because the most of them are very happy in their life maybe they're not killing it financially, but the point is, is their life is already their life and they live it a certain way in their means. And and they're perfectly fine with that. And so it is, it's very different to where the past couple years playing in these tournaments with these guys where I was in contention, it's almost like you really feel they're pulling for you. Yeah, They're like, Hey, come on, come on, keep getting more, Keep, keep, be aggressive, be, you know, almost trying to help you with it. And, the coolest part about it was last two years ago when I won that thing playing with Woody Austin, I would outdrive him by a little bit. And I, my caddy and I, my buddy who lives in Orange County, he, he would fly out for, to caddy for me and we would just listen to him and his caddy have their conversation about what they're trying to do on the approach shot. And then I would just do what he did. <laughs> or at least try to, you know, because they're caddy. Okay, they're, now we'd have different numbers, but the caddy's going, "Hey, we got one forty. I need you just short and left of this pin. You don't want to be above it, so stay short and left. That's that's the straight uphill putt, you know. So <clears throat> that stuff that never crossed my mind. Right. I'm trying to hit it to a foot, yeah, right, <laughs> right, which, right, which right. Most of the time, I can't do, <laughs> but that's what I'm thinking. So therefore, if I'm hitting a little draw with that wedge. I'm going to start the little draw at the pin, and if it comes up a little short, and or it goes at the flag and spins back into the left, perfect.
0: So much of it is that course management, but then also the psychology, which I would imagine is similar from a pitching standpoint. Of okay, I made a bad shot; I've got to leave the bad shot, just like giving up the home run, yep. right behind me in the past, and then moving on and focusing to the next shot, or in your case, the next hitter.
1: Which I do, which I do a really good job of on the golf. Course. Did you have to train yourself to do that,
0: or was that something uh, that you inherited from your baseball?
1: It was a little bit of both. It it took me playing in a bunch of these tournaments before I could, before I got comfortable out there. I'm still not, trust me, I was 10 times more comfortable on the mound than I am out on the golf course for these, these, the Tahoe tournaments and the Diamond Resorts. So it's, that was my safe space being on the mound. You know, I I was as comfortable as it got. And well, when you get, when you start giving up more homers, you know, it, it, it helps get, being able to get over those things. You know, I, you still see young guys dwell on it. You know, they give up that Homer in their innings and they game, implode. They they,
0: implode. they
1: really do. And, you know, I always just took the approach of listen, he, he, that ball is in the stands. It, it's not coming back. The run <laughs> is not going to be taken. The guy's not going to run backwards around the bases and head back to the dugout. So you, you better learn to get over this and worry about this next pitch and and you eventually eventually I did, and I had a short memory. I could get over it pretty quick, but then once when I did have bad starts, I would dwell on those. those would kind of frustrate me and get to me, but they would also push me to be more prepared for my- my next start, yeah, yeah, so you know uh it. Well, it maybe didn't look that way in St. Louis because it wasn't very good, but the point is is that <laughs> You're that being I, too hard
0: on yourself, man. Two thousand five yes, was legit.
1: Yes, but that's but that's how I am though. Yeah. You know, that's my personality. I, I'm always hard on myself. And you know, as as you can look at numbers from that oh five season when my shoulder was starting to bother me a little, but the reality is is that I was awful because all I had that year I couldn't throw a curveball. I couldn't throw my cutter at all because I couldn't finish anything. My, my arm was starting to deteriorate. My arm action was getting terrible that year. I basically just, I, man, I, I don't know how I did it, but it was, it was just slopping up a sinker and a split because I knew how to pitch, though. That was the thing. I could get away with having nothing. I, I tell people I had nothing that year to get anybody out with. I, I just, I just willed it to happen because I'm gonna find a way. Just like I'm gonna find a way, no matter how bad I'm hitting the ball, to put the ball in the hole. I'm gonna find a way to get you out, and eventually that cut up to me. But man, I had some awful starts that year because that, at that time, I didn't have anybody to get any, or I didn't have anything to get anybody out with, and it was all smoke and mirrors that entire season. And looking back, I'm not even sure. I mean, I guess I won as many games as I did because we had a really good team at times.
0: You were a 16-game winner, because I'm sure most people listening to this don't have baseball reference up in front of them. So for the purpose of the knowledge of the listener, 205 innings pitched... While you weren't feeling good, by the way. That's amazing. I don't even know how many guys will throw 200 innings this year. Of course, the game has changed in 13 yeah. years, the way they're handling yeah, it. But don't,
1: don't, don't get me started on that. Yeah, I might get you
0: started on that. <laughs> uh, 16 wins, and then, what, three complete games, by the way, two of which were shutouts. And uh, and when you had, like, a classic duel with Roger Clemens in 2005, if, if, if memory serves. Yeah. So, I mean, for you being hard on yourself about uh, your numbers, you know, I mean, look at those numbers. are pretty damn good.
1: Well, I, I but I guess you know how I always look at it. If if I wouldn't have had the the terrible arm action that I had, and and if I if I would have had 0-1 to o three o four and a half right. halfway through the halfway through the 0-4 season is kind of when things started to happen for me with my with my arm. But if I would have had o one to halfway through the o four season in that. If I would have had that stuff in '05, I would have won 25 games for the Cardinals. Yeah, yep. yep. Because the team the team was talented. Um, it, it's just you know, it's just how I look at things, man. You know, it's just uh, I I expect a lot out of myself, and it doesn't matter whether it's baseball, golf, whatever it is. You know, it makes me so frustrated when I hear people, and, and and I understand where the stat guys are coming from when they sit there and they say wins don't mean anything. But every single starting pitcher, I took so much pride in winning a ball game for my team, and going out there and trying to finish what I started and throw complete games. All those complete games, one of those years in Oakland, I think I had... Nine. Nine, or... Yeah, there, it was something around there. And and I, I think Dave Stewart had the sort of modern-day record of 11 or so for the A's at that time, and that's all I wanted. And I think I got hurt in 03. Was it 03 when I had 11, had nine?
0: You had nine, but you only had 186 innings pitched, which is really saying something. Nine complete games, but only 186 innings pitched.
1: Yeah, because I had a stress fracture in my hip in mid-August. wait. Was it mid-August? I don't know. Either way, I had a stress fracture in my hip, and I missed part of the season, and and all I wanted was to get that many complete games. And I just took so much pride in outlasting that other starter Mm. because I figured if I can outlast you and I can stay in that game longer, I'm going to win more games, and my team is going to win more games. You know, And I just always felt the more outs I left for the bullpen – Not that they weren't talented, it was just the more outs that I left for them, the harder it was for for them to finish that game. Yeah. yeah. You know, if they have to come in and get one or two guys out and then another guy comes in and has to get two or three guys out, that's that's okay. But when you start leaving them twelve outs, you know, nine, twelve whatever it is, it's too many. You're you're the you're the horse. You're that guy who needs to go out there and do that. And now it's, it makes me want to puke when I watch half these games where, and doing TV stuff, doing games, watching guys getting through six, and you see them looking down to the, dug, down to the bullpen like, you're you going to get somebody up? <laughs> I, I, I can't and, – and that's not me trying to – and I'm not saying the starters don't try to finish the games now. That's not what I'm saying. It's that they're conditioned to pitch six because of the minor leagues. So that's not their fault. You know, I mean, they're, they pitch five, six innings maximum in the minors. Well, how are you supposed to? You can't expect that guy to come to the big leagues and know how to finish 8-9 innings because they've never done it.
0: See, I wonder if this I'm curious what you think about this. If if you think this is a fad or if you think this is the way it's going to be 10 years from now. I feel like it came along a combination of the numbers guys you call them the sabermetrics along yep. with what we saw and I think it might have been in 2014 or 2015 or a combination of both with that Royals bullpen that had, God, I can't remember, I think Holland was one... Holland, Herrera, uh, and Wade Davis, y- I believe. Yeah, and it was just like, okay, get to the seventh inning with a lead if you're the Royals, and you're gold. And then yep. now it became, okay, we can't let guys go through the lineup for the third time. And I don't remember hearing anything about that when the 2005 yep. Cardinals were winning 100 games, but that's where I feel like it started. I could be wrong. I mean, you were calling games, you were on baseball tonight. Maybe you, you were hip to win. Yeah, it.
1: I think it started maybe a tad bit before that, but there's also... There's also numbers. I saw something. I think since 2012, it had, the number of complete games and 20 game winners has significantly dropped. Oh yeah, and and the I'm sorry, and also the number of 200 innings pitched mm-hmm. to where I think last year there were only I think 12 or 13 guys. And I've said it before, we're only a couple years away. The minute Scherzer. Verlander, Kershaw, um, couple guys like that. As soon as they start getting a little bit older, there there are going to be no more 200 inning pitchers. Right. Yeah. It's just it's a thing of the past, and I just think it's incredibly unfortunate. I I understand bullpen guys are starting to make more money. Um, the thing that scares me in it, to where I think it's going in a really bad direction is is what's going to happen in in five, ten years? I mean, are we just going to have a team full of pitchers? And it's going to be, hey, John, you're starting tomorrow. Rick, you're going to start the next day. To where they're going to go three innings. You know, to where you're just going to have 13 pitchers on your team and then, oh, okay, you threw three yesterday and you threw three today, so we're going to send you out. and So basically it's just going to be a rotation of, say, 20-some-odd pitchers with a with a nonstop flight to and from the Triple Eight,
0: <laughs> that's what it is right now. That really is what it is exactly. right now.
1: Exactly. You that's know, but but I'm saying that it, I almost feel like it's going to get worse to where there's not even going to be the, a number one starter. It's just going to be oh okay, well these guys are healthy today. These guys are healthy. These guys can pitch today. It, it's it's trending in a not that I like to use the word trend, but it's trending in a bad direction
0: let me ask you about uh, your time with the a's when it was that core group of you hudson and zito and also you mentioned cory lytle I mean, he was a, he was a part of that 2011 or 2001 excuse me rotation as well i've talked to isringhausen before and I, I wonder if you would fall into this category i would tend to think you don't but what do i know isringhausen said if he didn't get out of oakland he probably wouldn't have made it out of live because you guys were having so much fun were you, yeah. were you in the same category? Was Isringhausen running in the, the dark alleys well, and you were, you were playing golf?
1: <laughs> well, it was a little bit of both. I mean, there were certain times where I was the young kid and I was taking care of Izzy. <laughs> and I think he'd tell you that same thing. Um, yeah, you know, looking back at it, we were such a young team. We, were, we had no veteran leadership. We, I mean, I mean, none and I'll give you an example my first year in 2000 I was up for all of 2 weeks you dress up the rookies at the end of the year well Zito came up a few months after me in 2000 in 2001 in September Zito and I bought the costumes for all the rookies <laughs> so so that pretty we went to a costume shop in Seattle and bought the costumes for all the rookies. So that shows you... Now granted, we did have some guys who had more time. But the reality was is that our team was so young and immature, I guess you could say. But when it came to the baseball field, we weren't. We knew exactly what we wanted to accomplish. We knew we were good. We knew we were talented. But when it came down to it, when it got to the playoffs and we could never seem to win in the playoffs... That's where our lack of experience showed. And, and I've explained this to numerous people that, you know, we went into a playoff series with the A's all those years. And there was no, there was confidence, but it was fake confidence. It, it wasn't real. And, but yet when I got traded that offseason and came to St. Louis, I remember going to play the Padres in 05. And there was, I, I can't even begin to describe to you how it was, all right, let's go win these games and move on to the NLCS.
0: Just like it was like a four-foot putt. We know we got to do it. Let's just knock it out.
1: That is exactly right. And I couldn't believe the vibe and the feeling in the clubhouse of, okay, let's finish this off, let's be done, which I think we swept them.
0: Yeah, in 2005. It was
1: like like any old regular season game. It was just, let's get this over with and let's go. And I couldn't believe how much different that was.
0: And was that coming from like guys saying that, or was that behavior? Like, were there it, people? No, speaking, there wasn't, or?
1: I don't think there was anybody saying it. It, it was just, it. it was just the way you felt about yeah. it. Yeah. And it just seemed, it was just the confidence, man. And we didn't, we didn't have that in Oakland. And we, the off, the type of offense that we had in Oakland at that time, you know, that was the whole beginning of. Taking pitches and walk. Well, when you're going against the, the Yankees rotation at that time, they're not walking people. Mm-hmm. They're throwing strikes, so you're down 0-2-1-2 every single count. So the whole the whole, that's why us as pitchers, I guess, in Oakland, we never understood that because when I looked at my game trying to throw three pitches and get three outs, what is the other team taking pitches? That does nothing for me. <laughs> if I'm facing a team that had the A's approach, you know, like right. if you're giving me strike one, huh, let's go. <laughs> I like no chances. Because, yeah, because all I'm going to do is force you to start swinging the bat eventually. So that's why I always felt in the playoff games, these pitchers for the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Twins, all the teams that we lost to, they were just pouring in strikes. And every one of our hitters was like, wait, I'm down every count.
0: And this was part of the money ball philosophy, was it not? Yeah, I guess
1: so. I guess so. <laughs> I mean, sure. that was the whole, that was the whole vibe. And I remember Chavez, Ch- Eric Chavez was always the one who was like, why, why am I taking strikes? You know, I want to swing the bat. I want, like the, the first pitch, maybe might be the best pitch I get. So why am I not, why am I not ready to swing the bat?
0: Right. But they were instructed to take pitches.
1: Well, I'm not saying that they were necessarily instructed, but it was part of the whole, let's work the count. Let's get the starting pitcher out of the game. Let's see more pitches. That was maybe not money ball, but that was kind of what was starting to happen those years in Oakland. And, And don't get me wrong. It was not that guys wouldn't swing at the first pitch. It was just, let's work the pitcher. Let's work the count. Well, there's only so much you can do to work the count when they're pouring in strikes.
0: My understanding, by the way, because you did the show with me and Edmonds uh, when when Jim and I did a show for about a year, mm-hmm. a- and we made reference to Moneyball, and you had never watched Moneyball. I think you tweeted this out, as a matter of fact, after you did the interviews. You'd never watched Moneyball until Tim Hudson uh, called you out uh, on the show with me and Jim. Yep. And you did watch it, and I don't even know if you were mentioned in Moneyball.
1: Um. No, I don't. I don't. I don't think I was. They showed me um, in live game action right at the very beginning. They show us losing the playoff series. Okay. And they show me throwing a pitch. They throw. Show me in the. I don't know. They showed my face like three times or something, just in the very beginning. But no, there there wasn't a mention. And yeah, I. It was not that I purposely didn't watch it. It's just we had little kids at the time. I wasn't exactly getting around to watching movies and <laughs> finally all these people constantly met bringing up the movie to me. I'm like, okay, fine. I'm going to go watch this stupid thing. <laughs> so I, I watched it and I remember I was doing ESPN and I just started, I think they'd asked me to get on Twitter and, and this and that. So I, while I'm watching, I'm like live tweeting it going, going, okay, this didn't happen. That didn't happen. Don't get me wrong. I thought the movie was great, but 90% of the in it was made up you know we weren't paying for drinks in the clubhouse there you know I I get it it's a movie I I thought it was great but you know the the premise of it was not based on Jermaine Dye Tejada Chavez Ramon Hernandez myself Zito Huddy all of us which is fine that it's it was based on trying to get the most for you know out of I don't know you can't say less I just mean trying to find diamonds in the rough yeah. I guess value I mean, it's value yeah, but the word yeah, we hear now to get value. value out of guys yeah. and and Hatterberg and Bradford and a handful of those guys were were awesome for us so you know I I thought it was I thought it was a really good movie but it was incredibly exaggerated I guess. Yeah
0: well I mean if you watch it and you remember the 2001 A's you know you didn't no disrespect to Scott Hatterberg but you don't go boy without Scott Hatterberg but you do go without Mark Mulder without Barry Zito without Tim Hudson so it was odd that you guys were kind of like background noise if you were even acknowledged at all to the entire film.
1: Yeah well and, and and that's totally fine. I mean, you know, Steven Soderbergh was supposed to do the movie originally, and then he backed out. And Sony, I think, was part of it. And they actually, at that time, they called myself, they called a whole bunch of us, because we were going to play ourselves in a couple locker room scenes. So, no joke, I was, this is 10 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, and I get a phone call. I'm supposed to be at the Minor league Complex here in Arizona the next morning. Guys had already flown in, were at a hotel, and I get a phone call at nine o'clock at night saying, "Hey, movie's off. We don't need you."
0: Oh my god!
1: And that really was at nine p.m. We were supposed to be there at seven or eight in the morning the next morning, and that's when we got the call. And and then about a month or so later, I get a check from Sony for like six grand. <laughs> and you're like, you're like, well, all right, free money. <laughs> yeah,
0: another of you know? that.
1: And, and I honestly, I didn't even know I was going to get paid anything for doing anything. Because I never asked, nor did I really care, because it was just a day and a half they were asking us to come down there and do something. So all of a sudden, some random check shows up, and you're like, oh, this is cool. That's okay. sweet. I
0: enjoy those. those yeah, are fun. exactly. Hope you're enjoying this conversation with Mark Mulder. James Carlton has been on board from the very beginning of this podcast. And we're grateful for his support. Uh, With home buying season heating up, after you get pre-approved with Ryan Kelly, be sure to get a quote from a top agency and provider of the number one home insurer in North America. That's James Carlton at 314-961-4800. That's 314-961-4800. Or online at carltoninsurance.net. You can check them out on Google and Facebook as well. You'll see very positive reviews. Why? Customer service, second to none and also the ability to save you money. It's real simple. 314-961-4800. James Carlton is his name. State Farm Insurance is the company, and this is somebody over the last, oh, eight, nine months, I've gotten to know and think very highly of both as a person but also As an insurance agent, this guy gets it, and I have a feeling he is going to be a force in the St. Louis area for a long time because of the way that he does his business. 314-961-4800 or go online at carltoninsurance.net. If your insurance costs you a leg and an arm, call James Carlton State Farm. I would say if if you look back to famous plays in Major League Baseball since 2000, I would think and I'm I'm doing this just off the top of my head maybe somebody could debate me on it but I would think the Jeter flip and the Pujols lidge home run would be in the top 10 of 10 plays in major league baseball since 2000. I think that's fair and if it's not it's at the very least debatable and you were there for both on the on the wrong end of one on the right end of the other.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was uh that Jeter play, you know the the thing is is when the there were media stories the next few days and obviously a long time about that play. But, you know, when the Yankees tried to, or there were people who said, Oh, the Yankees. Yeah. They practiced that in spring training. <laughs> Can you practice just, that? <laughs> just, just stop it right now. Just, I, I don't want to hear that because I was sitting right there and I saw exactly what happened. So the ball goes in the right field corner. Jeremy Giambi's on first base. Ball goes in the right field corner. The shortstop, what does the shortstop do? He becomes the cutoff to third base. So the second baseman goes out, shortstop, Jeter kind of comes towards the cut of the grass, um, kind of in between, let's just say, the mound and second base, but closer to third base. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Kind of just shortstop position, but just way up on the cut of grass. Right. He kind of drifts that way. Well, he's kind of just in between, say, the cut of the grass and the mound, And the second, I forget who the right fielder was, but the second that ball is thrown, he sees, we all saw how high it was and how it was overthrown. That's when he took off running. So from the time the ball left the right fielder's hand, there's a reason he's in a full sprint when he catches it right near the the first baseline is because he had to run that entire way. And if you think about it, coming from just, in between, say, shortstop and the pitcher's mound, that's about how long it takes for a a fast guy to run this far. So the ball's in the air, and here he comes running. So for them to write reports that, oh, yeah, they practice, just stop right now (laughs) because you don't practice anything (laughs) like that. So he comes over, makes the play, and, you know, at the time, obviously you would think if there's a tag applied the way it was applied to the back of the foot or wherever – you would think Jeremy would have slipped or stumbled. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Like it would trip a guy. Right. So, we always when when a few of us get together, you know, obviously we don't ever really talk about the play, but now that you have this high definition, which we did not have at that time, it would be interesting how it would be called today. Yeah, with the review. Yeah. With all the different cam- camera angles, with the review, with the high def, cuz obviously with the cameras that we had at that time, it doesn't, you can call it either way, to be honest with you. You know, does it touch his pants? Does it, but his foot never moves as far as you can see on the camera. So whether or not, I have no idea. Um, I do think the umpire, the way it happened, I can't disagree with his call because it sure looked like he got him. Um, But there again, when the foot is in the air, you would think it would cause would... a guy to stumble right. or a spike would slip. You, you get what I mean? Sure.
0: Absolutely. I've always so, felt like that play it was a great play, but I feel like if it weren't made by Derek Jeter and it weren't made by the New York Yankees, it wouldn't have the attention paid yeah. that it has in history's annals. Am I, what do you think about that? I, like I, like if it were like can, Miguel Tejada for you guys, running across and flipping it to the catcher. Yeah,
1: I, I completely agree. I com- There was such a – you know, and and – the game was different, and that's not me being an old guy. It was just there were calls that happened in your home parks for the home teams because the crowd is on their feet. You got, I, I always felt the Yankees got every strike three call looking in Yankee Stadium. We got a lot of strike three calls in our place. Mm-hmm. Not in that series. I just mean throughout the entire season. Right. The game was umped differently because there was no accountability. There was no... That was the beginning of that quest tech or whatever when only a few stadiums in baseball had that system. Yeah, You know, so I personally, I would love to pitch in today's game where a strike most of the time is a strike and a ball's a ball. Mm-hmm. You know, the umps, I feel, are so much better. Um, you know, I mean, what, how would it be for... for Maddox and Glavin and, and those guys, you you look back, at, they were incredible. <laughs> but now every pitcher is forced to throw strike. Right. I think those guys might even dominate more now than they did then. But obviously the calls that they got then were incredible. Yeah. And when you look back at the old videos, I think it's awesome as a pitcher. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's incredible how if you just hit your spot back then, you it was a strike
0: it was from something else the the calls those guys (laughs) would get my god the strike zone was so liberal so along those lines you 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 experience the Jeter flip on the wrong side of it but you experience Pujols Lidge on the right side of it and anytime I've talked with a guy in the 2005 Cardinals and I ask him about that moment the thing that they all say is the silence is what they remember most what do you remember most
1: it was it was the eeriest thing I've ever experienced playing baseball, in a good way for us. But you heard our dugout, and you kind of heard our family section, <laughs> and, and I'm not and I'm not kidding. The the stadium went silent, and and you don't ever hear something like that. You don't hear. First of all, I don't think a dugout very seldom except for clinching a game ever makes a sound like that, Mm -hmm. you know, because there were so many people in the dugout because it was the last inning and there were MLB people in the dugout, you know, that kind of stuff because they had to, they were in the tunnel right there because they had to get out on the field because of the last inning. So, you know, it's just, it was something that you don't very seldom ever get to experience. And, The silence was, it was, it was incredible because you could hear the yell from our dugout and you could faint I was up on the railing and you could kind of hear something up behind you where the family section was. And that's, that's all you heard in that entire place.
0: When that ball, one of my favorite elements of that whole thing is the cutaway of Clemens and Pettit in the dugout and, and Pettit going what do you go oh
1: my god. Well yeah and then I think Oswald was next to him where he kind of put his head trying to hide behind Clemens or something like like are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, I mean it was yeah, it it's something that you know to be a part of that was was pretty special and as good as Lidge was at that time. I mean, boy, that Astro bullpen I mean, they had to give, Albert had to give them nightmares over a handful of those years. Oh, I, I mean, the know. things that he did to them, I mean, geez, you could you could write out, you could be arrested for, I mean, there could be a crime report for some of the things that, some of the things that he did. I can't even remember, calls. Chad calls, I mean, some of the... Some of the things he did to that, pit, that bullpen, oh, man, <laughs> that was incredible.
0: I mean, to see that, not only to do it, but for the ball to be hit like it was, it wasn't just like a rope that barely cleared. I mean, the thing I was
1: just crushed. Yeah. I, I think, I think it, it stinks the way – I don't think, in a way, it's, ama- it's sad and it's amazing how quickly people have forgotten Albert's run. You know, there's such this perception. Even when I was doing ESPN, you know, and I I remember, you know, all these stat guys and and stuff. Oh, yeah, he's terrible. I'm like, you guys have no idea. You know, because a lot of them were little kids. Yeah. You know, these are 20-something. This is three, two, well, three three, three years ago, I guess. My last year at ESPN, two and a half years ago. You know, and they, they talk about what he's doing for the Angels, and, oh, he's just... His, his war and his replacement, va- it, shut up. <laughs> you know, like, I can't, I, I understand all of this new age stuff. There is definitely a place for it in this game. But when you start ranking people's worth, and I I'll never understand that because unless you're between those lines and you're in that dugout and you know what a single person and how the, the 20th best player on your team can mean more to your team than the 3rd best player. You know, and and you can't put numbers on that type of stuff. And and that's the thing that the baseball's going away from the 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 team guys, the ones that bring that worth. Yeah, they might not produce a ton, but those ones that mean more than than some others and uh, Frank Manichino was one of the one of the most important guys on our young A's teams because he said anything and everything to anybody. And now he's the assistant hitting coach or the hitting coach with the Marlins. And people all the years Bonds was there as a hitting coach. Everybody went to Frankie. They didn't go to Barry. Mm. You know, so that that's the thing. There, there's just it's tough when people forget. How good somebody was just because they're they're older and they're maybe not producing the way that they did for 12 straight years. You I, think, know?
0: I think so much of I could be wrong on this because I'm sure part of that is exactly what you're talking about the wins above replacement, the decline there, but is the contract and the contract is viewed as an albatross and you can't for talk sure. pool holes without talking about what the Angels gave him and are still yeah. giving him. You know that's what I, I, yeah. I feel like that's part of the.
1: Oh, no, it, it absolutely is. It absolutely it, it is. But I guess just as a player, you know, I think players have a little bit more of an appreciation for what people, to do what he did and do it at that elite level for that long of a time, I, I guess I just look at it, no matter what the contract is, that team decided to do that, you know, and – it's, it 's it to sit there and say it 's worth every penny, no, it isn 't for the angels, but i i just I just look at it and I go it it is for him because the things he 's done and it 's not like he forced them to pay him that you know
0: right I mean to think about how long he 's been going and as you and I are, are talking he 's ten hits away from three thousand yep. i mean it, he started in two thousand and one, crushed it from the very beginning, and it would be the equivalent of somebody playing in 2001 who was playing when the Tigers and Padres met in the 1984 World Series. I mean, that's, yep. the, that's the duration that he's been doing this, and it's not like he's an automatic out by any means with the Angels at this point. And that's 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 phenomenal. Was he the best player you ever played with? I mean, I, I guess it would seem like that's obvious unless I'm missing something.
1: No. Yeah, yeah it, it wasn't even close. Yeah. I, it, it wasn't even close. I, I told people watching him day in and day out, just from that 05 to 08 which I know some of the years prior to that were even better but watching him for those four years I'd I'd never seen anything like it I I just the production the 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 things he did on the field the hits he came up with the things I'd hear him say in the dugout you know he, he'd he make an out on a slider his first at bat and he goes you watch, you watch he's going to throw me that again, and I going to hit it that way. You know, and and just the chirping in the dugout. And next day, be slider homer to right center.
0: You <laughs> would call. And a you're shot. just like you're
1: like, come on. <laughs> you know, you got to be kidding me. And it's just watching that type of stuff because there'd be guys from time to time. Tejada used to do that all the time in Oakland. Be like. Oh, are you going to throw that again? I going to get him. And sometimes he would, sometimes he wouldn't. But man, the times that Albert did it, it was it was special.
0: So when you were part of the 2006 World Champion team, how do you view that? Because Isringhausen, who was also a part of it, like all the way until I think the second week of September, which then yep. opened the door with his injury to Adam Wainwright becoming the closer. You were you started all the way up through the end of August, but Isringhausen says. That he won't even wear his World Series ring because he doesn't feel like he was a part of it. And I'm like, man, I just, I mean, hey, it's his World Series ring. He of course has every right to do with it what he wants. But not only was he a part of it for the first five months of the season, I've heard so many guys say Isringhausen became like a coach in the bullpen for a lot of those young dudes uh, that were so important to to beating the the Padres, Mets, and, and Tigers. So, how do you view how do you view your World Series ring?
1: Um. I view it very similarly. Really? Yeah. I, I wore it once to a wedding and took it off halfway through and put it in my pocket. Um, I, that whole season, man, um, I was, I was miserable to be honest. Um, I was miserable in Oh six. I had even less to get anybody out with. Um, I was just flipping balls up there. I was throwing eighty. You know, a good example. I I'm, that year, right th- the start before I went on the DL, I pitched against the White Sox and got absolutely crushed. And the first AB against Jermaine Dye, who was one of my best friends, I threw him a fastball down and away, and he hit it to just short of the warning track on right field for an out. And as he run, I, as he ran past me, I go cause he rounded first to go back to the third base dugout at Comiskey. And I go, I go, that's all you got. And he goes, nice changeup. <laughs> and I go, that, and I go, that was a fastball as hard as I could throw it. <laughs> and he kind of gave me this look. He gave me this look like, what are you talking about? Cause it was 86 miles an hour. Uh. And the next day I went on the DL and that, that next morning after the game, um, we're out on the field talking, and he's like, "Dude, what is going?" He goes, "Because I pitched against Burley so many times." He's like, "Burley's in the dugout talking about how you look like you're a mess out there, like you're going to blow out something." And I, that's how I felt, you know, that's how I felt out there. And I was, you know, the whole once I went on the DL, and you know, you're trying different things. I had my surgery, um, I think, in September, right before the playoffs started. And I hate saying this, but even before I went into surgery, I, I knew my career was done.
0: Really? And, and, and this is September six. Even...
1: Yeah. Wow. I I I knew it, and I, I don't even know why. I I can, Well, looking back, I can say that. At the time, obviously, that is not how you're thinking. Uh-huh. But I I knew it, and I knew it even more the second I started throwing after my first surgery. I started throwing. And it, it was, it was as if all the muscle memory of my entire life had completely been erased. So when my hands would separate my, the ball in my hand, it would kind of go out and away from, it would go somewhere different every single time. And I I compare it, tell a PGA tour player, bring the club, when you bring it back, bring it way to the inside, bring it straight back or bring it way out away from you and now go win a tournament. Mm. And you got to do it differently every single time. Yeah. That's, that's how I felt. And I, I, you know, at this time, coming back from my surgery, I was rehabbing in Arizona, and then you go to spring training, and I wasn't ready. Um, and then I stayed. It, it's different. At that time, there, wa- there wasn't even a pitching coach in Florida for me to work with. It was, it was Adam Olson, the rehab guy, who's now with the team, he was the only, he was the only trainer that he was the only guy that was there for me to work with. You know, the, the, that's how much, that's how drastically just in these, what, 12 years yeah, it's changed that the game has changed where you have people everywhere to make sure things are done right. This and that, you know, I had nobody to watch me to, to anything. And, and looking back, I wish uh, the second I started throwing and I knew how bad my arm was working and how, how different things were for me. I wish I would have had a way to have addressed it right at that time with some pitching person, whoever it might've been, you know, to where we could have worked mechanically. We could have figured out, okay, why? Because I always looked at it this way. It always made me wonder if... When they fixed my cuff and my labor and whatever, it even though what they said it all went back perfectly, it made me wonder whether my arm, that 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 ball in that capsule, whether it sat ever so differently. You know, if it just if my shoulder sat differently in some sort of way, and that's why things changed for me. Um, But I I did deep down inside where I didn't want to admit it, I knew. I, it, my arm was not going to get better, and I knew I was done.
0: You threw, you started three games in September of '07. Didn't go particularly well. I'm, I'm not doing this off memory. I'm doing this off of looking at Baseball Reference.
1: Yeah, no, no, it went terribly. Right. Well, I, I
0: gotta be, I gotta be polite. Uh, but yes, it, it looks like the numbers didn't go real well. Then it looks like you did a couple of relief appearances. In June 30th in 08, July 2nd 08, and then I remember, now I do remember this, this is from memory, and I remember just, feel- I was gutted for you, and we barely know each other, yep. uh, but I remember watching after you started, I thought it was at New York, but I guess it was at Philadelphia, uh, yep. y- You're walking off the mound after starting against the Phillies, July 9th, 2008, and you throw a third of an inning, strike a guy out. Walk two guys, and then I don't remember what happened. I don't know if Yachty was behind the plate or who it was. And then, and then you're walking off the field, and I'm like, I, I, I wonder what's going through his mind as he's walking.
1: Well, off the I'll field. T- uh, Well, I'll tell you. So I, stri- I, I, I'm facing Jimmy Rollins to lead off the game. I get him three two, and I throw a fastball inside to strike him out, and it hurt. That pitch hurt like none other had hurt. Had your relief
0: appearances hurt the, the two before? No. Okay.
1: uh uh-uh. They were just, the arm action was just terrible, and, and I it was just bad. So that pitch hurt. The the hurt, the, the feeling went away right away, though. So I was like, okay, all right, I'm good. I proceeded to then walk the next two guys to where I think mentally I was so scared of feeling that pain again mm. that I was just basically kind of like almost, if I saw i i wouldn't i don't think you could possibly get me to watch a video of those next two at bats because I remember the feeling on the mound almost being scared to throw the ball home, and the first pitch so I walked those two guys um it doesn't make sense, though, because I don't understand why I would have picked over to first base. Anyway, I, I remember picking over to first base. Maybe I did that with a guy on second okay. or with a guy on first before I walked the second guy. Yachty called a pickoff. I threw over to first base, and I'm not my arm. I basically felt I threw it off of my left hip. I felt like I threw it like a softball player, but, but it was sidearm. Because I was so scared of getting my arm up to feel that again mm-hmm. that I basically just flipped it over there, proceeded to for, throw four more balls, and I, then Yachty came out, and they came out, and they took me out of the game. And I, I was numb. I, honestly, I was numb walking off that mound because I knew I knew it was the last time I was ever going to do that. There's anger, but there's, there's just a numbness to it. Like, I knew I was never going to walk off or be on a big league mound again. So. Wow.
0: So you're thinking that as you're making your way just from oh, that without, mound in with, Philadelphia to the dugout?
1: Yeah, without a doubt. God,
0: and you know, I'm, yeah. I'm sitting here looking, and this is, a, this is a weird thing to say. It will probably It's not intended to. It's in, I have pure motives when I say this, so I want everybody to know that, and I know some of our audience are going, you've got to be kidding me. But when I look at so I've got baseball reference up, as I've made reference to a number of times, because I honestly thought, and listen, I mean, my God, I'd do anything to make $33 million. But you made $33 million, but your career was over in 2008. I mean, for real, and I mean, whether we're talking about 2018 dollars, for the stuff that you had pre-2000, I don't know what number you would say, pre-2004, pre-2005, pre-2006, yeah. whatever, I mean that's a, that's a, it's a likely even in those times seventy five million to hundred million dollar career, and yeah. and it just got blown up by a shoulder injury.
1: Yeah, yeah. It can uh, it can be it can be taken. Well, I mean if I, I Zito and I have this conversation all the time, we we both w- would have had I not gotten hurt, we both would have gone into free agency that same year. You know, and he got. I don't know one twenty.
0: Yeah, it was a or, nine, yeah, it was a, nine, yeah, whatever it was a it was. nine figure deal.
1: Yeah. So the the point is, I mean, and you know what? I don't know, man. I mean, I I'm way past that. There's I I never look back at it. I guess in that way, Um, I just I just would have I'd give up I'd give up a lot of things to have you know to have just been healthier and enjoyed it a lot longer. Um, I I love doing it, and I tell. I tell young kids all the time, I'm like, I had to go speak at Michigan State. They they kind of retired my jersey last year, and they don't really retire, them; they just honor it, but whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, and I kind of said to these kids, I'm like, I, I want you guys to understand, like I was here for three years, and I don't remember a lot of these three years. I said, now I get it. It's different because I went on and played so much more. I said, but these three years at Michigan State went by in two weeks. Yeah. When I when I look back at it, you know, and, and now looking back, I mean, at the time, you feel like the seasons drag on. Every is longer, you know, the the games. Oh, we're not even to July yet, and all this stuff. And you know, you look back, man, and it it goes so quick. And I have such a a thought in my mind that that I was a Pretty good pitcher for a while, and when I really look back, it was such a short time that I was decent to good in this game, and it was really just a one to, In my mind, it was—I I guess I only look at it as as oh one, oh two, oh three, and half probably till July of oh four when uh-huh. things changed for me. Wow, you know, so it's it's really just those three and a half years that. That I really look at, and um, to where I really was in my mind doing something special, you know
0: well, when I listen to you talk, when I listen to you talk about moneyball, when I listen to you talk about you know what what would be unfortunate circumstance, I think, by anybody 's definition with regard to what happened with your shoulder you do absolutely sound at peace, like you're not covering it up and dismissing it just so you don't stir the pot. And I do, but there's no question. I mean, I just believe I'm 100% all in on it. But yet you did still want to have a comeback attempt and were actually throwing the ball very well. And was that like 14 or 15 with the Angels? Uh,
1: 2014, yeah. Um, What happened was I was watching the playoffs in 2013, and I don't know, for some reason I I stood up and... (laughs) did like this arm action, holding my hands just a little bit higher. I was still, if you saw me, if you would have seen me throw, it was no different. Like you you didn't go, oh, that's funky. It was just something in my mind. I stood up and I grabbed a ball and I went outside on my basketball court and I'm throwing a ball against the wall. And all of a sudden, like this little hitch, this little bad arm action that I had, it wasn't there. Now, mind you, I hadn't probably thrown in years. So uh, Kyle Loesch, who... I golf with all the time and mm-hmm. a good buddy. He lives near me so I called him probably a week later. I'm like, "Dude, meet me at the field down." I'm like, "I know this is awful that your season just got done. Meet me at a field down the street, would you?" And he's laughing. He's like, "Are you serious?" I'm like, "Yeah, come on, just humor me." <laughs> and so we start throwing and um, the ball for some reason was coming out really good. And I don't have a explanation for it. I had no intent. I was do I had a I was in the middle of a Three-year contract with ESPN. Like I had no intention of this happening, and I started throwing and got to the point where we were long tossing and doing flat ground stuff. I'm like, well, let's go to an indoor place. Let's go try throwing off a mound. And so I called Chad Moeller, who used to be a catcher and has an indoor place. And uh, I started throwing off the mound there, and things were things were progressing nicely. And Next thing you know, I start throwing other pitches, and everything's everything was really good. I I always said to people, I knew how it needed to come out of my hand in order to f- for me to have a chance of getting guys out. Right. And by the time I signed, probably a week or two before I agreed with the Angels, it was coming out exactly how I wanted it to. And second day, first day of camp, I wasn't throwing. I was in the you know group A, group B, whatever it is. I was throwing day two of camp. Uh, we start stretching, we start doing our warm up, and we're doing a cone drill. And I am I'm, I'm back pedaling, and I stop to go to a front right cone, and I kind of fall forward on my hands, and there's like this huge loud pop, uh-huh. and you know how you. If, well, if anybody has had metal spikes on, you know how you catch the sole of your shoe with yeah. another with your spike? Yeah. Well, it made this big, loud pop, and I kind of fall forward on my hands, and I stand up, and I go to start running. And I take like half a step, and I went to push off my left foot, and I, I didn't go anywhere. Like, I literally didn't go anywhere. And I kind of, I lift up the back of my foot because I had the feeling that the sole of my shoe, like, broke off. And I got, like, this embarrassed feeling, like, no way. Did my shoe really just break? You know, that's, that's what I'm thinking. And all of a sudden, the, the, the trainer was standing next to me. He goes, Mark, don't move. And, of course, what do I do? I put my foot down, and I try to move. And I all of a sudden got this feeling that I could take my knee and touch it to the ground and leave my heel on the ground. Ah. Uh-huh. I got this, I had this like sensation, because it, it, I started to bend it or something, and, and instantly I thought, Achilles. I'm like, is that my, that's my Achilles. That's what, that's what's down there. And right away I thought, because just recently you'd had, well, not recently, but you'd had Ryan Howard, Kobe Bryant, right. a handful of people at that time, and I thought, wait, this isn't, wait, this is, this is a long, I'm done. Like that—that's what all of a sudden went through my head. Like th- this isn't just a, this isn't just a. Oh, you'll be fine in a week. Like I am done. And so they get a cart, they bring me inside, and you know, now mind you, there's 40 other guys around me, and I guess uh Jared Weaver told me later because he was right behind me. Um. He said, everybody heard it. They didn't know what it was, but a handful of guys thought that's what it was. And, he, like, everybody behind me was just like, oh, shit. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, you can you know, curse here if you just like. Kinda, it's a free-for-all. They just kinda, yeah, they just kind of <laughs> panicked, and you know, and, and that's – so they put me on a cart, brought me inside, and they had to take scissors um, right down the top of my shoe all the way to my toe ah. um, and just cut – to cut the shoe open. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. So – uh, the doctor, obviously you need to get an MRI to confirm it, but the doctor came in and he's like, you know, if you, there's certain parts of the ankle that if you push on your foot reacts a certain way and my foot didn't react at all, you know? So he's like, listen, I'm pretty sure you ruptured your Achilles. And so I, I worked, I had surgery, which I don't wish it on anybody. I know they say, Shoulders and Achilles are two of the worst. Well, I've had the two worst. I would rather have my shoulder done than an Achilles done. So I worked like you wouldn't, I I've never probably worked harder in my life over the next five to eight months. I, I rehabbed five days a week at a, so you still want to come back. Well, that was my intent because it was so good. Um, that was always my thought, but it was my left foot. It was my push off foot. um, and so I re- I rehabbed at a place five days a week for five straight months. I didn't miss a single day for five straight months, and I was okay after five months. That's when I started throwing. When the well, I could have started throwing sooner, but I wanted to just make sure it was healthy because it wasn't like I was going to come back. So I started throwing, and that off season, I it the ball wasn't come out of, coming out of my hand the same way. And that's that. And, And I worked all the way up until maybe January of the next year. Um, It was early January where basically I had buddies just going, dude, just sign with somebody. Sign with somebody and just see what happens. And I always took the approach of, you know, I've walked away once already and I'm not going to waste somebody's time because I knew it wasn't good enough. And just like I told you, I knew I wasn't coming back when I was in St. Louis when I had the surgery, I knew it wasn't gonna be right again. Yeah. That's I had that same feeling with this. I'm like, it's it's not right. It's not coming out of my hand the right way. I'm not gonna be able to get anybody out, and that's only that that's wasting my time and it's wasting a team's time. Yeah. And so, you know, that was that was kind of it. So that was kind of a a second kick, you know, where, where you right. you didn't, where you didn't just a kick in the sack that you weren't really looking right. for. And, but you know, it's, it is what it is. And, um, and I was perfectly okay with it. It was just the hardest thing. I think my oldest son was, oh man, I think he was six. And when it ha yeah, he was six. So when it happened, I texted my wife. I said, I just ruptured my Achilles. I'm done. I'll be home in a few hours. And she goes, you're done with the day. I said, no, no, I'm done. Done. And she, she was at a, she took my, at the time we only had two kids, she took them to a little horse show. And, uh, you know, she, I got home before she did. And when she walked in, you know, my foot's completely wrapped up, I'm on crutches, the whole deal. And to see your six year old start to cry because his dad's not going to play like that, that to me was the hardest thing I've ever dealt with. Ugh. You know, I can handle the injury, I can handle the rehab, I can do all that, but to see to see him get all sad like that, dude, I lost yeah. it. Yeah. That was the one thing that that was probably the hardest through that whole process. Yeah.
0: Cuz Cause he, cause he never Cause got a chan- none of your kids got a chance to see you play. My right? kid
1: yeah, my youngest was born in uh October of 07. So he was around uh for 08, but I didn't pitch, mm-hmm. you know, and he was not even one, so therefore you know my kids until until really a couple years ago, man, my oldest until he got to be probably six, seven, eight that 's when he started to kind of get it, you know, but prior to that, prior to that, he didn't really have any sort of understanding, so in fourteen, when this all happened that 's what i that's what pushed me every single day oh, God. with that I wanted my kids to to be able to see
0: that oh. you know. Well that really humanizes the story. I mean, because like I said, people are listening. It's like, okay, yeah, it sucks, but you made $35 million, you know.
1: You're well, and that's in the thing. Like, it, it, it was never, I don't know, man. I mean, during the time, yeah, you're trying to make the most you can because it's, because it's, it's all you might make your entire life. You know, I mean, you're never going to, a lot of people go on and never make another cent. Mm-hmm. But... It, I don't know. I I can honestly say during my my time playing, money was never money was never a driving force. I guess you could say I was there to I was there to win games, and and that was it. I, I just always figured you take care of everything on the field, and everything else will take care of you. Yeah. You know. So it was just never. I don't know, man. I grew up with the dad who was a manager of a grocery store for thirty seven years with three boys and my mom was a part time travel agent, so how they ever managed to feed the three of us with as much as we ate to this day <laughs> I still I still have no idea. My dad you know it's funny, man, my dad never made over thirty nine thousand five hundred dollars an entire year. Wow. And
0: for you made most, that probably yeah, like in an inning.
1: Yeah, yeah. And he he reti- well, he retired in 2001. I mean, I kind of retired him. I didn't pay him. I didn't, I just kind of gave him a blank check just to symbolize it. But, you know, he retired then. And my mom, my mom actually still continues to do travel stuff today because she loves it. But point is, is that the way that I grew up was not how I live now. So I think that's probably a
0: misperception about you, by the way. And I could be wrong on this. Like, like for real, I mean, I started out the interview and I was just BSing, so I wanted to talk about golf with you. I yep. honestly, and I guess if I remember when you were in St. Louis, I, I'm like, yeah, you know, g- good chance Mulder grew up, you know, hitting wedges when he was four next to his dad, <laughs> who was a doctor or something like that. And then you're like, well, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. And I'm like, well, fuck, I guess I got that wrong.
1: You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. I grew up, I grew up right near Cal City. I mean, I hate saying it, but you, you, I grew up five miles from where a lot of bad things are happening now. Yeah. Yeah. you know and it wasn't quite it wasn't bad when i was a kid but i mean the whole area that i grew up in has progressively gotten worse over the years and it's sad it's really it really sucks seeing the way the, that whole south side of chicago things that are happening and the way things are it's disappointing
0: scottsdale now 40 years old only 40 years old hell of a golfer Money in the bank. You know, when I was when I would, like, hang out with, with Edmonds when we were doing our show, and he's like, yeah, dude, I just want something to do. I mean, Jim, I don't know at the time. I don't know what he would have been, like, 43, yeah. 44. And he goes, that's the worst part. And that's what Carpenter, Chris Carpenter, he's talking about. He goes, that's the thing that he's going to have to – that's, like, the biggest fear is what are you going to do? Because guys like us – I'm talking about me – who yeah. work every day, we're like, oh, what I wouldn't do to be 40 and have enough money that I didn't have to work anymore, but – the other side of it is you're 40 and now you can't do what you had been doing all of your life. So my question is, how do you? What do you do? You have three kids, you have a wife. What yep. what 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 are you doing? You were broadcasting,
1: still yeah, broadcasting. The last two, yeah, the last two years I was doing A's games. I was just doing maybe 35 games, just to just to basically give myself something to do, and I and I loved it. Um, I'm not doing it anymore. Um, they wanna, they ultimately. I mean, the reality is they, Ray fossey has been there a long time, and I'm not going to move to the Bay Area. I don't want any part of doing 150 some odd TV games. Right. So <clears throat> that that's now done. Um, I don't really. I this this is the first year in shoot almost seven years that I won't be doing any TV or that type of stuff. So I'm not really sure. But right now, I mean. Our, our, my kids are so freaking busy with everything they have going on, and I'm a part of pretty much all of it. I mean, my six-year-old, I help coaches baseball and flag football teams. My oldest, while he's on like a little travel team, I don't help coach that, but I'm there for all of it. Uh-huh. My daughter has dance, and she plays golf, and my oldest just started flag football again. So, you know, it's 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 plenty busy. Um, it's just from... Eight thirty in the morning until about two thirty in the afternoon. That I don't have a whole lot going on. So, do you like that, or it. you wish
0: you were doing something?
1: Um, you know what? It's kind of both. It, it's kind of both because I love having the freedom of, oh, uh, you know, what I'm going to go up and play nine holes, or I'm going to, you know, meet buddies and go play, or I'm going to go hit some balls, or uh, I've started working out a lot more. That that's allowed me that time to do that. Mm-hmm. Um. But, yeah, there are definitely some days where I find myself at 1030 in the morning sitting on the couch going, huh, now what? Yeah. You know, um, but there are also times where when I was gone doing TV stuff where I was missing things. You know, I remember my dad would sneak away from work for, to hopefully catch that one and a half innings where maybe I got an at bat and I pitched that uh, an inning you know where he could instead of just watching me get 3 outs and then have to rush back to work because I made I hit the inning before. You know, it, it was my parents tried their absolute best to be at everything for myself and my brothers. And so I just I just kind of have that approach of my kids are only going to be young for so long. So I want to be around for all of it. it it's just I want to be there for him. I want to be, I want to see everything. I want to, I want to experience it with yeah. them, you know?
0: Yeah, I, think, I mean, I think, that, I think anybody in that position, that's what they would Because I was, saw you on ESPN. Here's the thing. When you were in St. Louis, it's not like you were, like, by any means. So I want to make this clear as well. It's like I'm going, no. Oh, well, you were kind of a – you were great. But you just weren't really r- – rarely in broadcasting. This is what I was saying on our radio show earlier this morning. Cause I said I was going to be interviewing Mark Mulder. I said he was great on TV. I interviewed him. You know, we interviewed him on our show. Where our show's still going 14 years later. And you were a great interview, but it's not like you were Mister Media. Again, I want to make it clear: it's not like we were like, "Oh God, we don't want to talk to Mulder." It's just you weren't real. I don't know what the, I don't even know what the right term. It's like you, were, I, you weren't a go-to guy, but when you did talk, it was great. It, so it was kind of just. But like, I, did, I didn't. I didn't want to be. Yeah, well, who does want to be though? I mean, who would want
1: well, but, to be? Well, but but that's but that's what I'm saying. Like my whole career, I didn't. I didn't want to be the guy talking. I wanted to be the one doing. You know, and yeah, I, I, the, one of the beat writers in Oakland used to joke with me every time I pitched well, he goes, I could just write your post-game comments.
0: What, you he had goes, the Kevin Costner-Bull Durham thing ready to go?
1: Well, n- no, not quite that extreme. <laughs> <clears throat> not quite that extreme, but, but I never wanted to give anyone a reason to talk about me other than what I was doing on the field.
0: No upside in it.
1: I just, I didn't care if... If I was written about in, oh, hey, let's get to know Mark Mulder better. Like, that, that just wasn't me. I, I didn't want to give the media more. I, and that was, and now.
0: Did somebody tell you that coming up to not get into that? Or was no, that just you, your own thing?
1: No, I, I just, I, I was always a very shy person growing up. Um, baseball obviously changed that for me. Uh, base, that's the best thing about baseball was that it got me more outgoing, it got me more talkative, um, things like that. I, I'm a very, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm fine in my little bubble at home, I guess. Yeah. You know, it, I'm not the my. The reason I married my wife, one of the many reasons, is that she could walk into a room of 30 people that she doesn't know. And by the end of the night, everybody will like her. (laughs) If I walk into a room where I don't, and there's 30 people, I will walk out of there and I still won't know 30 people. (laughs) You know, I'm a very standoffish person. I'm, I'm not the, I'm not the loud guy in the corner holding court. Um, I, I just never, that was never anything of mine. I, I just, I just wanted to do my job and answer the questions, and and it wasn't, I wasn't trying to be generic. I wasn't trying to be blah. It was just, hey, here's the facts. Here's what happened today. Here's this. Here's that. And I'm out.
0: Yeah. Well, because if you do say something, quote unquote, colorful, then it becomes a whole thing, you know. And now you're dealing with trying to put out a fire. If you say something, or if you if you're honest, like, yeah, you should hit well, the cutoff and man. It screwed me up. Now you're a bad teammate because you. You aired something publicly that needs well, it's, to stay in the it's room.
1: Funny, it's funny you say that. I'm the person, you know, some people hold things in, some people, you know, when they have issues, some people, where I'm the person. I have to verbalize things. I, I have, and it might sound really bad. It might come across the wrong way and people might not like it, but it's how I am. I'm very straightforward and black and white. Um, and if if I say it, I don't mean it to be mean. It's just, that's how I feel. Yeah. So why should I tell it any any other way and I remember I had an awful start in Cincy and I'd been pitching terrible this might have been in 06 maybe I don't know and I remember getting done with the game and I had to get it off my chest and I with the media I'm sitting there in Cincy I go I don't know something's got to change because I can't keep going out there doing this to my team because I'm, I'm sick and tired of this I'm pitching awful I cannot keep going. you know and I said all these things that I had to get off my chest. And I remember Tony finding me in the outfield yes, the next day and being like, "Hey, um <laughs> uh, about all that stuff you said yesterday?" You know, just that. but but that was the thing. It's like I'd only I could only take it for so long of me being the way that I am because anytime I'd ever had a bad start earlier in my career, well, I'm going to fix this. Mhm. Well, now I knew I couldn't yeah. because I wasn't right. Yeah. you know. So it's like I had to get that out and get that off my chest because I, I couldn't take it anymore. Yeah,
0: and the reason I bring it all up is because like, then I see a pop-up on ESPN and I'm like, oh, there's Mulder. And I'm like, oh, Mulder's really good. And I'm like, you just usually like – like Kurt Warner. When I covered Kurt Warner when he was here with the Rams, it's like, yeah, you could totally see him being a broadcaster. And then there were some guys who were just great interviews, but they weren't star players. And so they're not going to get the opportunities because the networks want the guys who are, you know, either all-stars, Hall of Famers, whatever the case might be. And again, so I'm making, I want to make it clear. I know you know what I think. You know what I'm saying? It's not like you were an ass and was like, oh God, we got to ask Mulder. It's just, you just weren't a guy that we ever would have, I would have ever, I don't want to put words in anybody else's mouth, would have ever thought, oh, he's going to go, you know, be on ESPN. But then you did it and you were really good at it too and did it for a few years.
1: Yeah. Well, I saw Tony, Tony came out to ESPN one of the years I was there and, he walks in and I, I, I give him a hug and say hello. He goes, "God, I never knew you knew all this stuff." <laughs> you know, and I was like, "Oh, thanks a lot, Skip. Appreciate it." <laughs> you know, but that's but but I hear that from people all the time. Is they're like, I, and I and I did." They, ESPN called for a year, and I was like, "No, I have no interest in doing that. No, thank you. Just come out and audition. No." And then a guy that I knew from MLB went to ESPN and he in the I don't know. He called me. He's like, "Hey, just come out and audition," and he's like, "I can set it up, this and that," and and I go, "No." He goes, "We might not even want you." And when he said that, it then became, uh, <laughs> it, it became, you know what? Okay. <laughs> I will go on audition. Let's see how this goes. (laughs) But to be honest, if he wouldn't have said, we might not even want you. You
0: would have been out on the course with Loach the next day.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) And I'm not afraid to admit that. It was almost became, that it became like a challenge.
0: Oh, man. God, that's the way to play you, I guess. Always just call you, you challenge you, and then you're in. You're in. Yeah, right. Unbelievable. Well, How about this? I told you at the start of the interview I said, "All right." You said, eh, "About a half hour is fine." And here we are, an hour and thirty-seven minutes later. And I'm like, "Well, we're not going to go two hours or anything." And now look at what I've done. <laughs> look at what I've done. What
1: an ass! I mean, just what an know.
0: unbelievable ass. Well,
1: that's good. I, <laughs> I haven't. I have to leave in. I have to leave for, in 25 minutes. For, for, <laughs> I, I'm going to be gone for the next two and a half days. I got to leave in 25 minutes, and I haven't packed an actual thing yet. Perfect. Why? Why were you late, Marco? <laughs> I was
0: on a podcast with some jackass in St. Louis. Perfect. <laughs> what are you doing? Playing pebble for the next two days? I assume. Or
1: I, I'm not. I'm playing Derek Anderson, the quarter uh, oh, yeah. quarterback, former uh, the two Brown of and playing Panther. In, uh, what's that?
0: Former Brown and Panther, right?
1: Yes. That um, we're playing in a little two ball, little two tournament uh, where we got a practice round this afternoon and. Uh, in Tucson at, at a course and uh uh Friday and Saturday's a little two man two ball tournament so
0: Godspeed. I've enjoyed the hell out of the conversation, man. This was great. Cool. Mark, thanks so much. All right, thank you. Talk to you soon. So there is Mark Mulder and as you heard, we were supposed to go a half hour and then we went just, you know, we, we were still talking golf. We hadn't even I don't even even said the word baseball. And we were 30 minutes in. So, but let me tell you something here. There's sometimes there are guests and you go, yeah, this one's going to wind up going long because the person is loquacious. Mark Mulder is not somebody I was thinking. I thought, yeah, we'll probably get a half hour from Mark Mulder because he's probably going to go play golf or hang out with his family, whatever the case might be. And he was just, we just got lucky that he was in the mood to talk. And I really, um, first off the golf regarding golf. It puts the whole thing in perspective as far as the game, because Mulder does win these celebrity tournaments all the time. It's almost weird when he doesn't. He's that good. And in his analogy of it it drove it home. He said it's like an A ball player getting called up to the major leagues. And, yeah, maybe every once in a while he can get a hit or he can strike somebody out, but it will be incredibly rare and that is the gap between where he is as a golfer and then the pros that he plays with uh, in in the Scottsdale area, and there are a number of them there. Um, so what he said, Ches Revy and Pat Perez were a couple he mentioned, um, and just how it, how you know, and then all due respect to both of those guys, um, be, both of them have had some, over the last year, some success, no question, but they're not at the level of Dustin Johnson, Jordan Spieth, uh, Roy McIlroy, Tiger Woods, of course. Uh, so, you know, it gives you an idea. Of, and Justin Thomas, how the player of the year. So it gives you an idea of, of the gap. And, you know, so when I go out there and I fire my 76 and I'm like, oh, maybe I need to start looking. Yeah, I just need to shut up and stop and be thrilled that I did that from the white tees. So uh, that on the golf and no desire whatsoever to go on the Champions Tour, which I think he could if he wanted to. Uh, But as he said, the guys who are 42 now are going to be 50 when he's up there on the Champions Tour. So it's not like it's like the field quality's dropped. On baseball, I was really anxious to ask him about that scene. I thought it was in New York, as I said, at City Field uh, or Shea Stadium, for that matter. But it was in Philadelphia because I remember, even though I didn't know him and I still really don't uh, real well, watching him walk off the mound and seeing the look on his face after throwing. I think he threw one-third of an inning for what was this big return start and what was going through his mind. I remember th- I remember watching that and specifically thinking it, and he confirmed what I suspected was going through his mind, except he said it more definitively. I figured he was thinking, I might be done. That could have been it. And as Mulder just said, I'm done. That's it. And that's why, even though I wasn't friends with him, it's not to say I was enemies, I just didn't really have a relationship with him of any kind, I felt horribly watching that uh, a little more than, what, 10 years ago, 10 years ago now at this point. And and then the other element is, because, you know, you just, I mean, why would you be sitting around digging up baseball stats for guys who haven't played in a decade So I hadn't done it regarding Mulder, but I didn't realize how young he was when everything kind of went off the rails. He was one of the best pitchers in the game in 2001, 2002, 2003. Um, And then he gets to St. Louis, and as he said, he was a bit damaged goods because the second half of 2003 wasn't very good. And even though uh, in 2004, I should say, uh, that he – had some good numbers in 2005. He said he was doing it with smoke and mirrors. And that's a guy who wound up starting what was the final game at uh Bush stadium two. the Cardinals losing to the Astros in game six of the NLCS. Um, and you know, and then the comeback attempt with the angels blowing out the Achilles. The point is this, and I wonder if you feel this as well. First off, I would imagine a lot of you are like, man, I had no idea about Mark Mulder with all of this stuff. Um, so that's number one. But do you feel some sympathy? Because it's hard when you're sitting there going, "Okay, here's a guy who, even though he's done playing baseball, he's one of the best golfers uh, who isn't playing professionally around, um, and he made thirty plus million dollars uh, playing major league baseball." So it's tough to like be like. Oh, I feel sorry for him. And, you know, you know, I don't think everybody goes sorry for him. But it is a bit of a sad story, in my opinion, because it just got knocked off track. And as opposed to some guys who I think when it does get knocked off track, they're kind of like, oh, I made my money. I don't really love doing it anyway. He clearly did, except I don't think I realized that he clearly did while he was playing. If anything, I could have seen him. Matter of fact, I probably would have bet that he might have been somebody who been like, yeah, that's fine. I like playing golf. I just started my family. I'm living in Scottsdale. I'm good. Don't need it. But clearly that wasn't the case because uh, he tried to come back. He tried to come back, and that was with the Cardinals. And then he tried to come back a few years later and missed it. Uh, and and then also got into broadcasting, which I never would have thought either, but was very good at it. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation. It was kind of like a sneaker one. like As I've said before, like Kelly Chase expected people to love it because it's Kelly Chase. Uh, the Matheny one, I didn't know going in if it was going to be any good. And then I got done, I go, wow, that was cool because that was Matheny. Like, you rarely hear Mike Matheny these days. Um, And on this one, I had no expectation of the detail and uh, candor we got from Mark Mulder. So hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing it. You are welcome to email me anytime. T. McKernan at InsideSTL.com. And uh, give your feedback, your suggestions, just questions, just BS, questions for the audience. All of those things are welcome uh, via email. So from the homeloneexpert.com studios for executive producer John Seymour, videographer Nick Yale, I'm Tim McKernan. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network.
1: Look for specially marked packaging and visit mtndugaming.com for details and restrictions. Open to U.S. residents 17 plus. Call of Duty ports available on 12 and 24 packs and free 20 and